This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. Hi, everybody. If you're the person that loves personal growth, this is the show for you. Our next guest is Dr. David Lieberman, great guy, best-selling author. His tactics are used by the FBI, the NSA. He's got seven books. He's been all over TV. He's been all over uh, the news. And we spend about an hour breaking down the core of personal greatness, who you are, how to make decisions, how your decisions impact your feeling, what happens if you follow the ego and the implications, what happens if you follow your soul, really cool stuff. If you're out there and you're trying to figure out how you can make better decisions or how you can feel better or how you can feel more worthy or how you can become more powerful, this is a show for you. Delving into current events to uncover relevant wisdom. Uncover relevant wisdom. This is the Charlie Harari Show with Charlie Harari on the Blaze Radio Network. His name is Dr. David Lieberman. Dr. Lieberman is an award-winning author and internationally recognized leader in the field of human behavior and interpersonal relationships. He has seven books, which has been translated into 19 languages. I know I can't even count 19 languages, including two New York Times bestsellers. And they were used by the FBI, the Navy, Fortune 500 companies, governments, corporations, mental health professionals in more than 25 countries. He was in publications around the world. He's been on the Today Show, Fox and Friends, PBS, The O'Reilly Factor, NPR and The View. He is one of the most, what I love so much about him is that he has this unique ability to merge various industries into each other. You know how much we love this on the show. Spirituality, psychology, how to be great. It all comes together, and you have to really know your stuff to get that done. Dr. David uh, Lieberman, welcome to the show. Thank you, Charlie. It is wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much. So give us a little bit if you can. I know that you've got a lot of books going on. you got a lot of things happening, and I want to really spend this show really picking your brain because I've read I've read your stuff. Um, in particular, I'm, I'm right now in the middle of your latest book, and it's really... I think you talk a lot about unlocking greatness, which is the title of this podcast, is, is that there are ways that you can be great. There's aspects in where you can be great. Um, and how do you get there really is, is, is sort of a passion. And it looks like it's your field of expertise. So start with us right away with the stuff that you teach the FBI and the Navy. What are some of the tricks or the tools or the wisdoms that you teach them in, in their training? Got it. So uh, I do wear a couple of hats. And I suppose if I have an area of expertise, it's under the umbrella of human nature. So my talks and books and workshops and tapes and all that stuff sort of run a wide spectrum from dealing with marital harmony, self-esteem, happiness, personal development, interpersonal conflict, relationships. And then towards the other end, I do work uh, with the government on tactics of interview uh, and interrogation. Uh, lie detection techniques, reading people. I've written a couple of books in that area. Uh, and so what I try to uh, bring to the table there are some very practical ideas in terms of helping to uh, gauge whether a subject is being honest. And again, interview uh, techniques of interview and interrogation to sort of uh, gain a better insight into whom you're speaking with. 
and also in some instances better navigate that relationship if you want someone to be an ally which comes in handy in certain instances where you don't you already know the person's guilty but you you know want him to cooperate and work with you and so on uh so there are techniques of uh you know uh proper ways to encourage somebody um and things like that so so jump in with us for a minute because as i'm hearing you talk i'm getting really excited what are some of the techniques that you can use to detect if somebody's lying so actually a couple of books i wrote and i don't recommend people buy them because i mean not, not that they're not fine books but um you know unless you have a particular area of interest uh you know it's i would recommend other ones uh, one is a book called Never Be Lied To Again, which catalogs actually 46 different clues. A lot of them are body language, which we can cover those. Uh, and then you go into more sophisticated techniques, which really take a lot of time to develop. Um, but one we can sort of share with people without the benefit of video, you know, happens to be, you know, explaining some of the body language uh, signs and signals. They would include, you know, eye contact. Now, anyone that has children knows that an unsophisticated liar or a child, for example, is going to have a very hard time maintaining eye contact. Uh, and the reason is because a liar, again, particularly a child, someone who feels a degree of guilt, uh, generally uh, has a feelings of guilt or shame associated with their behavior. And eye contact increases intimacy. Therefore, by breaking eye contact, we have an easier time sort of selling the lie but when we're looking the person directly in the eye, it's harder for us because those feelings of guilt and shame come through. Now, of course, you don't want to rely exclusively on this. There are plenty of people that will lie, will look you straight in the face, and so on. Um, but for the unsophisticated liar or for anyone in five, you know, you might be able to pull it off with something like that. That's an amazing concept and how people, I guess, internally, is that maybe, I don't know if this is a scientific thesis or not, but as I'm hearing you speak, and I think this is, I think getting to some of your other works is that, Internally, people have this, in, you know, I guess it's a soul or whatever, but you have this um, place of goodness, the place of truth. And as you interact with somebody at an intimate level, if you're not aligned with that, you can't really connect to them. Is that really what's underlying this? Yeah, I think that's a great point, which is why somebody who is a, a, a sociopath or a psychopath, you know, is going to look you in the eye and come off extremely earnest and sincere because this person has convinced themselves that what they're saying is the truth or that their truth trumps a lie. Uh, in which case, you know, they can sell you on the fact that what they're saying is true in their own world. And that's good enough for them. Right. Which is also why sociopath is, is going to have an easier time with a, a polygraph test than would you or me. Right. That's so and, and I can imagine that that's how life works, which is an internal now this is, I mean, applicable to people like the FBI, but like you said earlier, the ability for a regular person outside raising your children, it's probably, I mean, I'm sure at work, there's great ways to, to use this, but to really look at some, but it's really depending on that person's character. And the more that person, I guess, is connected to you, the more it's harder and harder for them to not be truthful. That's true, particularly when it comes to something like eye, uh, uh, eye contact. But, you know, because the FBI, NSA and those other folks can't rely on, you know, one simple tactic, you know, we have to fold in 45 other tactics along with some more sophisticated <laughs> techniques because, you know, you're not going to have luxury of just sort of hanging your hat on, you know, one clue. Right. You can't really take the terrorist out to dinner and get a relationship with him. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. Unfortunately. So that really like leads me, I guess, into the, into the book that I'm in the middle of right now. And I think the topic of what this podcast is all about, I mean, the goal of this podcast is 
unlocking greatness, how extraordinary happens and how really what are the secrets and the techniques that people can look into to become the people that they're meant to be. And, you know, in your latest book that you wrote, that you wrote called How Free Will Works, which is really an amazing book, um, you have a piece that you, you really, the way I, I see it is you break down individuals into three categories. And I'd love to hear more about that in terms of these three inner forces that I think you, you suggest are the fundamental underpinnings of a person. Are you talking about the body ego soul dynamic? Yeah. Right. So, right. Within all of us, we have these three forces. We have the body, which is sort of the physical self. We have the ego, which is a projection of the false self. You know, think of the ego as a projection machine, an image, a facade of how you want the rest of the world to see you. And then we have our soul, our shama, our conscience, however we want to clarify it. And that's the real essence of the person. So all these, oh, this essence and the two forces sort of battle it out. And the more we go with our soul, the better we feel about ourselves. But whenever a person, you know, goes with the body in excess, excess sleep, excess entertainment, you know, it chips away at our self-respect and to with the ego. Anytime, you know, we buy something we can't afford just so that someone else, you know, will give us praise or accolades or we consort who we are to win somebody else's approval, that chips away at our self-esteem. But when a person chooses responsibly and does what they know to be right and true in spite of what feels good or looks good, that's how we gain self-esteem. And self-esteem is critical, not just to how we feel about ourselves, but it dictates life satisfaction, happiness, and really the quality of our relationships. So that's a great point. And I think it's something that we should really delve into here on the show, because I think the more somebody understands the interplay between the soul, the ego, and the body, as you say, I think the more they're able to look at their lives and determine what's driving their behavior. Um, isn't it, as I'm hearing you speak, I mean, there are things that every one of us does that I think would fit into the three categories, you know, indulging, overeating, or maybe sleeping too much, probably be body and making, you know, working to make money so that people see how big one's house is. I would think probably walk into the, into the ego and then the soul is probably doing what's right. So when you look at it from like an outside perspective, if I'm listening to this, the podcast right now, I'm thinking, okay, fine, great. I want to live the best life that I can. I want, I want self-esteem. I want to be able to um, have worth and connect to the deepest part of my life. But when you actually live it, it's incredibly difficult. And I think myself and many people included would probably go an entire life and parts of their decisions and parts of their days will be in the giving, if you will, to the body and to the ego. Why is that? Why is it that a person doesn't naturally incline towards doing the thing that is the most fulfilling? Uh, that's such a, a, a poignant, good question. And it really forces us to unpack a couple of ideas here. First off is that, you know, first giving into the body, you know, indulging in the body is not necessarily wrong. You know, it's we don't believe that, you know, a person, you know, should should fast, you know, every day. Uh, and, you know, wear, you know, not wear shoes and so on. The question is, at what point does one physical needs drift into the area of overindulgence? And we all know that point where we're sort of eating from that carton of ice cream, where we know the next spoonful is going to make us nauseous, but we just go for it anyway. That's really where you're tipping into, you know, giving, you know, overindulgence and excess in the body. Um, certainly we need to sleep, we need to eat, you know, uh, and and the objective when it comes to physicality is to infuse it with a sense of spirituality. You know, certainly 
Judaism doesn't believe that we should separate the two. We believe we should take the physical and infuse a sense of spirituality into it. When it comes to the ego, the ego is entirely a false self. It is a projection of what we're not, but how we want people to see, to see us. And it is a facade. And the more effort and energy we spend on this ego, the more we walk around wearing a mask and we're a shell. And it is extremely emotionally draining uh, to the point where it becomes damaging because there is no real core self. Right. So, you know, we, we really need to focus our energy on doing what's right and responsible because ultimately it benefits us. To go to your question of why it is we have these forces and why it seems easier to sort of give in, that goes to the core of, you know, how free will works. And that is the balance between doing what's right and doing what feels good or looks good. And if we were simply just driven to do what was right without any compunction or question or hesitation, then we would be angels. And then there would be no free will. And then, you know, you sort of unravel a number of other uh, important ideas as to why we're here in the first place, which we can get into or not if you want. But ultimately, we need this balance, we need this equation to allow free will to emerge. Because if there was no opposing force, then there wouldn't be a question and we would simply do what's right and we wouldn't have this uh, be drawn to do, you know, what feels good or looks good in spite of, you know, what we know to be better. So, so I really want to delve in this with you because I think this is, you said, you said a couple things here that are, um, that, that, that I think don't, people don't fully understand. Even I don't fully appreciate, even as you said it, I, I believe if I don't fully appreciate it, which is it feels very much in life that you choose between feeling good appropriately feeling good and doing good right if, if you would give a class on ethics no one would think that a class on business ethics would lead to better business you know ethics is doing a good job and doing what's right in life blah 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 and then there's like being successful right then there's being great then there's like enjoying your life right and it seems to be that what you're saying here and i, I really want to delve into this is that what you're saying here is that at your core you want to do what's right. And not only that, but when you do that, you are going to feel legitimately, authentically, genuinely better than following other aspects of your your psyche, like your ego, which is really trying to show off, or your body, which is trying to get you to overindulge. And the it's all really, you know, it's like a perspective. It's that you if you're gonna feel better, it's gonna be better. And the only question is, can you make that decision? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think you crystallized it nicely, and that's just it. You know, when we make a choice to do what's right and responsible, it's not just so our conscience won't gnaw at us. Rather, ultimately, that is a path to self-esteem. Self-esteem refers to the degree to which a person recognizes the creator in the image of God, but also that they are worthy of good things in life. And see, what happens is this. If we make choices that erode our self-esteem, and we routinely succumb to immediate gratification, or we live to protect or project an image, we become angry with ourselves, and ultimately we feel empty inside. Now, when you don't like yourself, what do you do? You end up punishing yourself in ways that are disguised as pleasurable, alcohol, drug abuse, excessive eating, meaningless distractions, diversions, and so on. But ultimately, these these illusions end up making us feel worse, and we descend further into despair. Don't win in much the same way that 
if you like anyone, if you got a friend you really like, you want to invest in that person. You want to give to that person. So if you don't like yourself, you're going to go for the low hanging fruit. You're simply going to do what feels good and want to feel good in the moment, not care about tomorrow. And if you really hate yourself, then you'll engage in self-destructive behaviors. I mean, it's the logic to how a person would treat somebody else is similar to how we treat ourselves. So the ability to make good choices and to have goals that are uh, synchronized with what we really want out of life and why we're here is fundamental towards feeling, again, not just self-esteem, but it runs parallel with our mental health. So, so let's delve. So you said something interesting that was as you were saying, which is, is this the feeling? Is that when you're engaged in doing what's right, whatever that is, I think we'll have to delve that together in a minute, but I just want to really fully understand this piece of it. When you're engaged in doing what's right, so if let's say you have a choice between um, eating the healthy food or eating the non-healthy food or um, engaging in something that's just really just there to make, you know, spending the extra money just so that people look at you versus spending the money so that you feel that you're dressed appropriately, whatever it is. If you're in a situation where you make a choice to do what is right versus what is what feels good or what is, is indulgent or whatever. The actual feeling that you get that we, when we say you feel better, the feeling of feeling better, because you don't feel better, right? Because if I overindulge, ice cream is going to taste good, much better than broccoli. But what happens, what you're saying is that once you make that choice, there's a piece of you that says, if you will, oh my gosh, that was amazing. You are so valuable. You are so worthy. Look what you can do. This almost like you increase in your internal soul an awareness of just how strong and worthy and powerful you are. And that is what feels good. That constant sense of growth internally is feels better than the immediate pleasure of whatever else you got that ultimately goes away and then reminds you that you're weak. Is that what really is going on? Yeah, that, that's definitely a very, very strong uh, variable in the dynamic because when you make an investment in yourself, you're sending a message to your unconscious, I care about you. And when you overindulge, you're sending a message is, I don't care about you. I'm living for today and you know, to heck with tomorrow. That's very damaging emotionally. Mm-hmm. And I- spiritual level, when we do what's right, we're connecting with our soul, which is connected to God. So we're behaving more God-like, which ultimately brings us greater pleasure. Got it. So as we, as we are, I mean, as we are connecting, if you will, towards a, the deeper sense of who we are, we are aligning ourselves with our true self and we feel the pleasure, what's the pleasure you feel, right? Because you didn't get the, now people aren't looking at you as much. You don't have the nicest car. Let's assume that you, no one's like, you know, stopping in the parking lot and you're not eating the foods you want and you're not sleeping until two o'clock in the afternoon. So what is that pleasure? You're saying that is a spiritual, this is who I am and I have, um, I am attached to the greater divine source. Is that the pleasure you get? It's certainly that is a pleasure that, that we get, but I don't want to leave people with the impression that it's sort of this abstract ephemeral feeling that, you know, you have to tap into. You don't have to take my word for it. No one has to take your word for it. They know from their own experience. Right. When you do something, I'm sorry. I'm just agreeing with you. 
Oh, okay. Well, then I won't interrupt you. When, <laughs> when, when you do something that you know is right, you feel good about yourself. I mean, you just do. When you oversleep, you overeat, you feel lousy. So magnify that out. What if you were moving your life in a meaningful, purposeful direction? You know, I always say it's a per- person that's going nowhere in life that always gets, you know, frustrated by sleep moving traffic you know when you're really moving your life and living in a meaningful purposeful direction connected with you and show me you saw what you're supposed to be doing you've got perspective little things don't bother you you can you just so appreciate what you have and you're maximizing actualizing while you're here a person who is simply going for you know the the excess the indulgence and i will tell you something by the way so many people i speak to a vast majority of the issues revolve around their image, how they present it to the rest of the world. And it is such a fragile way to live because not only are they waking up in the morning thinking, what are people thinking about me? But they contort themselves. They change themselves. They twist and turn who they are to accommodate somebody else so they'll get their praise and accolades and just leaves them feeling empty. So, you know, living a life in general and in moving our life in a meaningful direction and then sort of day to day living responsibly, making good choices, better choices each and every day. Both of those together use us with an unwavering sense of self-esteem. Right. So that, so, so just to play this out here, and this is one of the things that's in your book is that the idea that almost always, or most of the time, the choice really comes down to, because otherwise it would make, it would be easy, right? I think the essence of free will, which is what you're getting at is that if it would be easy to choose right every time, then it wouldn't be good. You, you wouldn't feel worthy if everything it's, if, you know, things are valuable in many times because they're not easily accessible. And so what people are grappling with, if you really break it down, I think is the level of effort you want to put into your decisions because usually the right choice is the harder choice and what i'm what i'm asking is is that sort of if you can obviously it's life is more complex than than just what we're saying but is that really what you find that when people go through life they're presented with options that deep down they know what to do or they should know what to do. And the option that usually is the right one that'll lead them towards that feeling of worthiness is just a harder one. And so they choose the easier one, feel worse about themselves, then feel less worthy mm-hmm. and then keep on choosing the easier one. And it's a spiral, if you will, of choice. I'm unworthy choice. I knew I'm unworthy choice. I'm unworthy where it's really just the decision of whether or not I'm pursuing comfort or greatness. That, that you, you just concretized it beautifully. And what the research show, shows and what you know, the, the rabbi said long ago, and that is that the quality of our lives come down to the quality of our choices. And the more responsibility we're willing to accept for our lives, the greater we're going to feel about ourselves. Because I'll tell you something fascinating, and that is this. The... The source of almost all emotional illness, anxiety, depression, addiction, and so on, comes down to the degree to which a person accepts their responsibilities and obligations or turns away from them. And here's exactly why it happens. If you're faced with a situation that you see, what, what, is, what is sanity? What does it mean to be sane? Sanity is really synonymous with perspective. The ability to see, accept, and respond to our world. 
That's it. Okay. Sanity is see, accept, and respond in a healthy way to a world. That's really what perspective is. So if I see reality and I accept it and I respond properly, I increase my self-esteem. If I see a reality and I don't like it, that means I turn away and I don't accept responsibility. Now I have a choice. I can either feel guilty, which is going to make me feel worse, or I can distort reality. I can blame you, blame circumstance, blame God, blame whomever I want to make myself feel better. So as we begin to move away from reality, we distort it to those feelings of guilt and shame. And that's when a person moves away from emotional health. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So your ability to not accept responsibility now creates, and I'm, I'm taking this later on in your book, where once you don't accept responsibility, you have this sort of cognitive dissonance where now your body's like, hey, wait a second. What are you doing? What do you mean? You, you, you can do this. You're a soul. You can totally, well, come on, really? You're, you're changing your life because of how the they look at you and then you feel bad. And so as a result, in order to protect yourself, you just start to, you know, either, you know, justify it or you, you know, you, you, you avoid it or you, you, you weaken yourself or feel more unworthy and, and you distort who you are or you distort who other people are because that allows you to get back to a place where you feel okay. Exactly right. Exactly. And, and with painting, we should be clear with the broad brush here. In no way do I mean to suggest that a person suffering with mental illness is simply making poor choices or lacking uh, taking responsibility. There are a number of criteria that go into mental health. And we're in no way, again, speaking about, you know, pointing fingers and saying somebody who is emotionally unwell just isn't taking responsibility. It could be a range of physiological, neurological, you know, chemical imbalances, life circumstances that go into the equation that never even allow this person a fighting chance. We're speaking about how everyday people, those that are not suffering, you know, with something in the extreme can move their lives in a more productive uh, and meaningful direction. Mm hmm. How would you how would you respond? So now, just to, to paint the picture for our audience, is that what you're what I'm trying to what you're what you've built in your work and what we're trying to hopefully build here is a direction, which is every moment you're making a choice, and those choices are being pulled by three different directions. And as you make better and better choices, which usually involve more and more effort, you're increasing your self worth, you're increasing your uh, your your val your self value, and ultimately feeling that connection to your true self. So the other aspects of life, which you mentioned, which are um, living in the real world, right? It's not, you know, I, don't, I don't think we're supposed to fast and you're supposed to indulge a little bit in the body and maybe not overindulge. And also yeah, there is a concept of sort of being part of society and, you know, having people think well of you. So how does one balance between knowing when it's time to enjoy what life has to offer Take breaks, you know, have downtime, sleep, you know, spend time, you know, off or from an ego perspective, you know, wear clothes that would be fit into their you know, environment, do things that would give other people um, a feeling of connectedness from a place of even uh, feeling good about themselves. And how does one draw the line between what is appropriate and what is now a directive that's pulling them away from their soul? Beautiful, beautiful, important question. So let's take the body and the ego separately because they're really two different animals. First off with the body, it's very easy to sell ourselves that, you know what, I really need, you know, this extra hour of, you know, flipping through the magazine or watching this extra television program, or I really need this extra hour of sleep, or I really need the two hours 
vacation or I really need the third scotch or I really need, I really need, I really need. Very easy to sell ourselves. Uh, and we have to be careful. And it, it's, it, is, it is something that I suspect everybody at different levels grapple with because it's not so easy because unlike the ego, the body needs to be fed. It should be fed. It comes down to ultimately, if you want to ask yourself, you know, is this responsible or not? You have to ask yourself, what's your motivation? In other words, am I, is it, am I really being honest with myself? And, you know, we lie loudest when we lie to ourselves. So, you know, when we want to give ourselves a break and, and taking a break, sharpening the saw, you know, taking off is definitely important. It's critical. It's necessary. The question is, at what point does that break drift into something that becomes self-destructive and move you away from reality? The objective of the body is to feed it, nourish it so you can engage in the real world and fulfill your soul's purpose. So the body needs to be ready. It needs to be strong. It needs to be healthy. And you want to maximize the body. But you also want to be careful, as you well point out, when that drifts into overindulgence. And I do think most of us, if we were honest with ourselves, would know in the moment you really don't want to look too closely at that second bowl of ice cream and you just want to eat it really quickly before your conscience can catch up with your spoon. Right, 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 right. <laughs> now, when it comes to the ego, the ego by definition is a false self. It is a projection. Yeah. It is, you know, people always talk about you have to have a healthy ego. You have to, they misunderstand what the ego is. It is a facade. It's either the soul, which is true, or the ego, which is false. So, it's one thing you talk about dressing nicely. Great. If you feel good about yourself and you want to dress as a reflection of that, wonderful. If you're dressing to impress somebody else and you contort who you are just so that they will give you praise, that's when you're drifting into an area that becomes unhealthy. The minute you contort who you really are and where, what kind of person you want to be in order to accommodate somebody and to win their praise and approval, that's when you really have to take a step back. Now, this doesn't mean that a person shouldn't, you know, who's feeling down, you know, put on makeup for ladies and get dressed. And, you know, everyone feels good about themselves when the external looks good. And there's this, a this saying, the external awakens the internal. But that's sort of a stopgap measure. That's something you do for a boost. It shouldn't be a way to live your life, living simply for people's praise and approval. It's a very, very, very precarious and ultimately dangerous emotionally way to live. So as I'm hearing you speak, I'm saying to myself, it makes total sense, right? It makes total sense that if I wear something or buy, and, I, and we both live in this world, so we both know people, you probably more than me, um, at least you from a professional way, I know them from a business way that people I, I know are working in jobs in order to have a certain amount of money to have a lifestyle. But if you really break it down, it's just they want to feel successful in the eyes of their society and they'll spend an entire lifetime. I mean, the entirety of their lives will consist of mostly doing things so somebody else can say, wow, you're, you've done well for yourself. And that's it. And that's the, it's that feeling when they walk in the room that, um, that they've made it. A whole life like this, there's no question. As I'm, and I and I completely agree, and the way you said it is true. It's a false sense of self. But as I'm hearing you speak, there's a question that pops into my head, which is, okay, if I am not the self that people tell me that I am, right? The reason why I think we're like this is because we we were raised like this. We show up, and we, you know, for the first two three years of our life, we're like, you know, loving life and 
you know, breaking things and starting things and learning how to walk. And then they put us in a school and that's like, basically like, here you go, kids. Like, here are the good kids. Here are the dumb kids. This is what you need. This is success. We tell you, these are the grades. And if you can do this really well, we're going to tell your parents you're doing great. Your parents are going to be proud of you. And then everyone's going to sort of give you the right positive reinforcement. And then you like sort of go up through the system. And then like, you know, you end up with this crowd, they end up doing this, you end up with this crowd, they end up doing this, you know, you go, you move to different places. And then like society sort of like takes you like a, like a, you know, like a raft in a stormy day, wherever it wants. So how does somebody know who they really are if all they've pretty much been doing their whole lives is trying to become somebody that society is putting on them? Excellent. The first thing is intellectual awareness is to wake up. And, you know, of the feedback I've gotten from the other book, Real Power, you know, which outlines exactly what you just said, is that is recognizing that so many of us have bought in to a a illusion that's perpetrated, perpetuated, perpetrated and perpetrated. Perpetrated and perpetuated. That's a lot of peas, by the way. It's a lot of peas. Yes. (laughs) And you should use that as a campaign a, slogan if you when you when you run for senator use that as a campaign <laughs> slogan you know it's a collective insanity it really is we've sold ourselves that this is what we're fighting for at the end of the day you know it's like that old you know saying no one would want on a tombstone no one would say you know i wish i would have spent more time at the office it's not until unfortunately a tragedy happens sometimes that people actually wake up and ask themselves the question what am i living here for why am i here is it really for this rat race, for this insanity? Now, there ain't nothing wrong with money, nothing wrong with looking good, nothing wrong with, you know, wanting to enjoy, you know, what the world has to offer. The question is, is it a means to an end, right? Is, is, is there, are you going to use this and allow it to be a mechanism to actualize your real purpose? Or are you simply going to indulge and overindulge, in which case it becomes a treadmill? And that's what depression is. When you simply get the stuff you want and you're not happy with it, you realize something's going wrong here. Right, 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 right. And, that, and I think that's one something that, that, that we as a society is facing. I just read a study the other day that the GDP in the last 50 years has gone up um, four times, or 400% um, in terms of the increase. And the happiness has gone up zero, and depression has gone up between two to 600%. And I think it's because, like what you're saying, it's just you, you, we're getting more stuff, but it's not the point. It, the, we're just not filling up the bucket. It's like, um, it's like the cup is empty. Uh, the cup is broken. I knew, I know you use that in your book as well. It's like the cup is broken, right? And if, as long as they're filling water in it, it feels okay. But the minute that water stops, I mean, the minute that, 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 that show turns off or, you know, you leave the crowd or someone else buys a bigger home or, you know, your team loses in the, in the playoffs or whatever it is that your, your life is wrapped around and that quiet settles in, you don't really like yourself too much. Yeah, right. Which is exactly why sometimes people who live for an image have a very hard time being by themselves is because there's no one. You know, there's there's no there's no one to give them that feedback that they want and they don't want to look in the mirror. You know, they just want their lives to be a window where everyone can look in at them. Um, And it's a very, very depressing place to be. And ultimately, the way out of that first is intellectual awareness that, you know, you're not going to gain happiness because you're always going to be just one thing away feeling complete. So it's just not going to work. And you have to sit down and really ask yourself the hard questions and recognize, you know, why you're here, what your purpose is. And as soon as you begin to shift your life in a more meaningful, purposeful direction, you know, so 
many feelings, emotional baggage, uh, apathy, the agony, the angst, the frustration, resentment, frustration, they begin to fade because we're now sort of shaking loose our ego and we're doing things that break us out of the comfort zone, may not feel good, may not look good, but ultimately they are good. And our soul just reawakens and we're reborn and we have an amazing sense of passion and enthusiasm for life. Right. And, that, and that's something that I think as you're speaking, I'm trying to ask myself like, okay, like what can I use now? I hear this. I'm in, I got, I, I, I am. I, and I, and I see it. I can see clearly now, like, you know, and I, and I'm trying to ask myself, like, okay, in, in an hour from now, when I'm presented with a decision, what can I use as a metric or as a litmus test to, to see if I'm making the right decision? Is it fair to say that um, when you're faced with a decision, um, you can look at what feels good versus what is good as a sort of way to tell, meaning if it feels good, then you have to really look closely and go, okay, is that am I doing it for the right reasons? But you can see what is good. Um, and if you're choosing what is good versus what feels good, then you know you're making the right choice. Could you use that as a way to sort of navigate the world? So I, I think that's, that, that's not a bad barometer. The challenge is that, see, the more connected we are to our soul, the more doing what's right is going to feel good. Uh -huh. uh, you know, it, it's going, we're going to have that sort of sense that uh, this is right. I, I would say I like doing this sort of, you know, 24 hour test is how would you feel about yourself the next day? In other words, you're going to wake up the oh, next good. morning, right? And think, ah, you know what? I'm glad I did that. Or that was a mistake because what that does is that gives us the one thing that we don't have in the moment. That's perspective. Perspective allows us again to see reality clearly. So when you do that sort of 24 hour test, it gives you a new lens to see the situation and very often a more honest and objective lens. Right. I had, I, I, I saw this thing years ago. I did this on, on the radio show in the boardroom that I have. Um, there's a rule that I was told years ago that has really saved my career more than anything in the world in that anytime you're in a situation and you're upset and you are either going to make a phone call or write an email, and specifically email, because email you can hide behind the screen. Um, whatever you're about, write, draft the email, it's fine. But what, don't send it until one night, until you get through a night's sleep. And the ability to say, I'm going to send the email, that person's wrong, or I'm upset, or I'm mad, or whatever the thing is, and I'll draft it. Like I'll get all my feelings on, on, on the screen. But to hit save and supposed to send and go to bed that night and wake up the next morning, the, the act of sort of going at it, getting out of that moment and getting that perspective, like you said, and going to sleep and like, you know, really just getting your life sort of cleaned in a way and coming back to that situation gives you a perspective. I can't even count the amount of people that I still are in my life um, <laughs> because, you know, I, I, you know, especially as I was younger and, you know, or, or business partner, or whatever it is, because you had that little bit of a perspective. And you're right. I think if we thought about like whether or not, the, the, you know, this would be 24 hour test or, you know, or, or even I, I think it's why I got to tell you, I mean, you know, King Solomon was the one who, who coined the phrase better to go to a funeral than it is to a party home. Um, I was at a funeral this, this past weekend and like, I, I can't even begin to describe the feeling you get when you're at a funeral. It's this sense of perspective that you get that you walk out with and go, oh my gosh, it's been a month, it's been a week and I don't have perspective. And I guess it's that perspective that you got to keep on getting to navigate you through what's a choice in your life, whatever that may be, that's, you know, sort of serving your true self versus serving, you know, your, your, like you said, your false sense of self. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, 
uh, you beautifully put. And you know, sometimes, oftentimes, like I give us flashes of perspective when we witness a traffic accident, or you walk out of the emergency room or funeral home. And you know, the, the more engaged we are with the ego, and the more it's activated, the harder it is for us to sort of shift away from that. But these opportunities gives gives us sort of a instant burst of clarity, and it allows for us to see reality, have perfect perspective or near perfect perspective in that moment. And those are really defining moments that allow us to feel inspired and to make a change. And the most important thing to do in terms of, you know, shifting our lives is when we feel those moments of inspiration that are brought on by perspective is to take action in the physical world because inspiration, you know, ultimately is our soul connecting with God. It is, it is the egos cast aside, the bodies cast aside. And it's just that pure sense of, wow, you finally, get that little bit of clarity. And, but very often we take a nap and that feeling goes away. But when a person feels inspired, they really need to take action. And what they do is they create sort of a home for that spirituality in the physical world. And they begin to really build. And then you connect and you fuse the spiritual and the physical. And that's how people move forward. And invariably, when you speak to successful people, they became inspired and they took action and that action led to further action, further inspiration, further inspiration, further action, so on. Uh, and, you know, if, if there's one lesson in terms of success, it's not to let that inspiration fade, but to capitalize on that moment when you've got that clarity and you feel like you can really do it. Do something right. in order to to create, again, a clear, a vessel for that spirituality. Right. And that's great. And, and I know that, that we're, we're running a little bit low on time here. I know that you have other things going on. I, I, and I really, th- I think you're right. I think on the positive side, that level of being inspired pushes you to a place of action, which only then continues to spiral upward. The one thing that I want to sort of, and you know, sort of cover before we end the show is I, as I was going through your book, there was a couple of things that stood out to me as um, manifestations, if you will, of um, living by your ego, living in a place where you're not sort of um, uh, satisfying your soul. And this is something that I think many people don't fully appreciate that when you don't make these right choices, and it's not like, you know, like we said earlier in the show that like, okay, you're a goody two shoes. And then like when you die, you'll go to heaven. No, your, your life will be better if you're making the right decisions. And there was three things that I saw in the book that really stuck out to me as um, real consequences to making the wrong decisions all the time. And the first one, I want to sort of hit all three here with you if we can. The first one, which is a, a the first lesson I learned, I went to business school for a, a couple of classes. I was in you know Columbia for law school. And as soon as I finished my legal requirements, I used to sneak into the business school and they used to you know, let me take some classes there. And I'll never forget the first lesson that I learned, which I didn't until, the, until I read your book sort of get the core of it, which is the number one thing that managers or entrepreneurs do wrong, if you'd have to sort of put them on a list of what do they do wrong, is throwing in good money after bad, right? It's making a call and it's the wrong call and keeping that call or worse, reinvesting that call, that decision, because you have to feel like you didn't lose out or you have to feel like you weren't wrong or there are other people involved. And what you say in your book that I'd love to hear from you about is this is actually coming from your weakness. It's coming from your ego. It's coming because you're more concerned about justifying yourself than you are about seeking truth. Is that, is that how to, how to characterize it? A hundred percent. And the, 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 again, the, it's the ego that wants to justify, wants to see us as being right and good and true, even if we're not. So you, you ask yourself the question, you've got day traders out there. 
Now, I've seen varying statistics. You probably know better than I would. Yeah, 95% of day traders seem to lose money. Is that, does that sound like a right stat to you? Uh, either they, I don't, I don't know if they lose, but they don't beat sort of the, the you know, the usual, if you would go in there and just sort of, I, I think the stats are, if you would just sort of pick stocks randomly over the course of a certain period of time, they would end up almost at the same place as people doing it all day. Got it. Got it. Fascinating. So what happens is this, is that, you know, um, Many of the decisions we make are emotionally based. We then use logic to justify our decisions. You know, I mean, I've got a house full of things that I really, 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 really thought I needed. And, you know, just because I wanted them and then to sort of justify it. And, and certainly, you know, the, the way to make a decision is to do what's right and then bring our emotions behind it and infuse that right decision with, with a sense of passion and excitement. Uh, but when a person is, as you say, you know, they throw good money after bad, they're trying to make right or wrong. It's harder for them to say, I made a mistake than it is to say, you know what, let me go ahead and average down, throw more money into the soup and it'll end up being good investment. My timing is a little bit off and they try and sell themselves until they're wearing a barrel around themselves. So, you know, it's very hard. And that's the one of the hardest things for the ego to do is simply to say, I was wrong. Right. You get into an argument with somebody, you make a bad decision. The ego doesn't want to say, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. When you learn how to do that, you learn how to live in reality. Your relationships are better and you're healthier. Right, and, and it sounds to me, and just to sort of come full circle here, is that when you're able to nourish that soul and you're making big calls, right? And you're passing on dessert, and you're, you know, you're, you're you're biting your lip from hurting somebody, and you're every 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 decision is making you feel more and more confident and worthy and valuable. So it's almost easier when you make a bad decision to say, "Hey, listen, I, I, I'm not wrong." You know, I made a bad call. It's almost the 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 constant nourishing of your soul of doing what's right allows you later on to have the confidence to make, to say I was wrong. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. The more you get into the habit of, of acknowledging reality, the easier it's going to be. But the more you deny reality, the more in case the ego is, the more engaged it becomes and the more it sort of supplants the soul or the conscience. So every time you, you choose to ignore reality and justify it, rationalize it, don't apologize, don't give in, you make it that much harder the next time, as you rightly say. And every time you make a right choice, you make it easier to make a right choice the next time. Right, right, right. So that, that was the first thing. The second thing that, and I'll, I'll just do two more and then we'll, the second thing is, is really something that I think people feel. I don't think anyone really expresses it the way I saw it in your book. Um, it's that whenever you get something good in your life, you just assume something bad's going to happen next, right? I know so many people <laughs> that like as soon as something good happens, it's like, well, you know, um, either it was like, you know, coincidence or it, it shouldn't have happened or they're, they're almost like waiting for like the world to balance out yeah. and send them bad yeah. because – it, that's how it should be, right? And I always thought it was just people being superstitious. But you seem to say that it's actually coming from a much deeper sense. It's coming from self-esteem. That's right. Because if, look at it this way, if I don't feel worthy of good things and something could happen, then I have a problem. Either I, my entire thinking about myself is distorted and I'm not willing to accept that. That's a big mouthful to swallow. So instead, I'm going then to realign my world philosophy and say, ah, if something good happens, it keeps 
you know, God loves me or I'm worthy of good things. Rather, it was sort of a cosmic bookkeeping error, and it's going to be corrected as soon as one of the angels figure it out. Right. I love that, right? Exactly. Someone, oh, sorry, I sent out, a, I sent you two things in the right. package. We'll make sure we, 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 we bill you on the credit card, yeah. right? Exactly. And, and the last piece here that I, I uh, that I want to sort of sort of end with here is I think maybe the most important of all this stuff is that you and you speak about it here and it's you know the Werther effect, which is and this I see all the time. My, I, we're all guilty of this to some extent, and you know I think this is a major issue in society and that I mean and also a major opportunity for people that can break past this. And I think this is where entrepreneurs really make the most in terms of impact is the idea that if you don't have that sense of self-confidence, if you're not nourishing that soul, if you're not making those tough decisions, if you're just sort of overindulging and weakening yourself or following your ego, you are now susceptible to sort of groupthink. You're susceptible to acting based on other people's acting, right? As you, you had quoted here, um, one philosopher said, insanity individuals is something rare, but in groups, parties, nations, and epochs, it's the rule, right? And this Werther effect in which you see people doing things, um, and, you know, the, the famous Milgram study and acting in ways or that other study that you had here, which is also great where people would, you know, look at lines and know how it would line up, except um, when, uh, you know, everyone else said it was one line, everyone sort of followed, even though that it looked wrong. Mm-hmm. And this is really where we, we can really mess up because you can really think things and perpetuate that same thought to your, you know, friends. And, you know, that's why you see people that are always one way politically their whole lives. And like, it's amazing. They never change or, you know, they never really shift their thinking until the world shifts it for them. And it's according to you, what you're saying here, just to clarify, it's when you don't really have that self-confidence, that self-worth, then you're just going to, in a way, be susceptible to what everyone else thinks, even if everybody else is just flat out wrong. Yeah, you're going to end up with the emperor has no clothes mindset. And, you know, and it, it is pretty much just buying into whatever the world tells you because you have no perspective outside of what is fed to you. Wow, that's it. That's what it is. Because like you said, it's all perspective. And if you've never worked on your own perspective, you don't know how to do that. Is that what it is? Is that if you've never created your own independent perspective, you just don't have one. Like, what are you going to do? So you hope that, that, that you know, but you're, 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 you're stuck in a way. That's right. In any situation where you, you know, take, you know, any specific scenario where you know you don't have any base knowledge, you know, the workman comes to look at your, you know, your deck, which needs to be repaired. You know, you'll take his perspective because you don't have one. You don't know anything about home repairs, or at least I'm, I'm projecting here, right? So then his perspective becomes my perspective. So imagine your entire life like that, where you have no core, you have no identity, you have no sense. You don't see the world any other way than how it is spoon fed back to you. And that is just a very, very precarious, dangerous, unhealthy, unpleasant way to live. Wow. Doctor, I really want to thank you for the time here. I think it's incredibly valuable. For those who are listening, we're actually going to check out our website at charlieharry.com. We're going to have this all show noted out, so we'll be able to really go through this together. And we're actually going to give you a link to, to, to buy many of Dr. Lieberman's books. But in particular, you had mentioned to me earlier something about the Real Power book. What, 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 what did you say about that? So one of my books... Uh, real power. It's actually available for free download, uh, limited time. But if they send me an email to Viter Press, V-I-T-E-R Press, P-R-E-S-S, at live.com, I'll go ahead and send them a free uh, ebook of Real Power. And the other book, How Free Will Works, that's just in a uh, fancy hardcover. 
Great. So we'll and we'll put we'll provide you all those links. So if you're listening on iTunes or on Stitcher or anywhere else on your right now, if you're if you're if you have us on your on your iPhone or wherever, um, if you go to the website charlieri.com, um, we're going to have this uh, audio up. We'll, we'll have the you know the, the the show notes all up, and underneath the show notes, you can get um, access to how to get to Dr. David Lieberman. Should you want to speak with him or um, you know engage with him in any which way his his materials how to get the free books and how to you know get all the links down and so uh, you can get more and more and more of his materials which i know you will totally enjoy dr lieberman thank you so much for your time uh we really appreciate it and, and i know that uh whoever listens to this is going to be able to really start the process of becoming the person that they're meant to be thank you charlie you're such an amazing talent you are a super person i appreciate the opportunity to share these ideas thank you and uh look forward to having you back on to continue this discussion thank you dr This is the Charlie Harari Show with Charlie Harari on the Blaze Radio Network.